My name is Sean Farrell, and uh, I'm your speaker this morning. Uh, Jake and Lauren are gone on a little mini vacation, so Jake asked if I would come and preach this morning. I'm actually from Faith Bible Church Marietta, sister church to you here at Faith Bible Church Menifee, and it was how many years ago? Yeah, how many years ago? Nine? Wow, it's been a long time since Faith Bible Church Menifee was planted from Faith Bible Church Marietta, which is called FBC. But uh, I serve as one of the elders there and also the college pastor. And so it's my privilege to be here with you. There are so many friends that I haven't seen for a long time sitting in the audience. I just known Patrick last time I saw him. Who's known Patrick for more than three years? He had a ponytail last time I saw him, so if that gives you any indication of how long it's been. Uh, but uh, it is, it's great to be with you this morning. Uh, I am a lay pastor, so I run a small business that dabbles in medical device. Uh, on the, not on the side, but that's my day job. And then by night, I work with our college students and have the privilege of shepherding our church as an elder. And uh, we have a deep love for your church. Faith Bible Church, Marietta, our elders have a deep love for you uh, and for the, for the men and women who are shepherding here. And we have long-term, deep relationships, and we love you dearly. And so I just bring love and all sorts of affections from the people that are meeting down at Marietta Valley High School today. By the way, I like this room way better than your old room, for those of you who were around. Was that pre-COVID? You've been here for a while now? So um, that thing, there was this big cavernous room you used to meet in, and this is different. Anyway... Thank you for having me this morning. Uh, has anybody ever been to Europe? Just, a, just some hands up in the air. You've been to Europe? Anybody ever been to Italy? Okay, has anybody ever seen the Sistine Chapel in person? Okay, we've got a few people here, our, our, our uh, art experts, as it were. Well, the Sistine Chapel is located in Vatican City, Italy. More precisely, it's in the official residence of the Pope, which is called the Apostolic Palace. In 1508, Pope Julius II commissioned Michelangelo to paint the entire ceiling of this most honored place. And the result of that work is one of the greatest demonstrations of Renaissance art um, that we have today. And you're thinking, I had to see that as a, as a kid growing up, going to school. I didn't think it was very good. But listen, there's a lot of good art in Europe. Anyway, in the center of the chapel, Michelangelo painted nine scenes from the book of Genesis, depicting various aspects of creation, the fall, the flood, etc. But the centerpiece is that iconic image of God the Father reaching down his hand, surrounded by little cherubs, and Adam reaching up, and their two fingers, maybe you can picture it in your mind now, their two fingers connecting as a demonstration, a depiction of the image of God being passed into the heart of man. For this work, Michelangelo was paid the equivalent of today's dollars, about $600,000, and due to the prominence of the work, he became the most well-known and celebrated painter of his day. And if you're any kind of an art buff, you might also know that Michelangelo famously carved the sculpture of David, and the Pieta, and his later years became a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle. Okay, that's just a cheap, dumb joke I should have cut out of my outline. Anyway, if you, if you were to travel to Rome today and look up over your head at the ceiling above you, some 40 feet up, and you were to see all 343 figures that have been painted there, you might also notice some carefully hidden, plastered over um, defects. They were 
they were at one point holes because Michelangelo and his men for five years as they painted hung scaffolding from the ceiling. They didn't build up. They hung from the ceiling and so they screwed into the ceiling so they could paint and work over their head. Now, I can't think of many things worse than working overhead. Am I right? Like, because my, my shoulders and my back, I'm just not very strong, as you can tell. I'm a little bit pudgy right now. So working overhead is miserable, but that's what these men did. And then they carefully covered that um, with some form of plaster, painted over, but still visible today. As the story goes, talking about those painters, three of them, who were part of Michelangelo's crew, were asked to describe their role in the project. The first answered, I'm just here making a living one day at a time. The second replied, I'm here in an effort to provide for my family. But the third said, I'm helping Michelangelo paint the Sistine Chapel. It's the same work, but a different perspective. Let me compare this to how we view parenting. Some are like the first man who see parenting as nothing more than a job. I'm just here literally one day at a time, just trying to get by. I'm looking forward to the day when they're going to be out of the house and I'm going to be liberated, not them. Some are like the second man who see the high value in the family. Circle the wagons, create a loving, caring environment, which, by the way, if not careful, can become an end in itself. And then there's others who recognize parenting for what it truly is. I am helping God paint a masterpiece. It's the same work. It's a different perspective. One stroke at a time, one day at a time, I'm working alongside God himself to instruct and to train and to prepare this child for life in the world. Every parent here wants the very best for our kids. And so we put them in sports, hoping they'll be the next Kobe or Patrick Mahomes. We push them academically so they can get into a good college, so that they can then have a good career, so they can then have a good life. We run them all around town to music lessons, theater performances, Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, and a host of other extracurriculars to make them more well-rounded. And we manage and we guard their friendships and their devices and a thousand other aspects of their lives. But in the end, our primary goal as parents is to see those little hearts love Jesus Christ. To see them choose to follow God on their own and live, listen to this word, independently as sons and daughters of the king. Parents, you have been commissioned by God to steward those souls allotted to your care into a loving relationship with him. It's an honorable endeavor, yet it is weighty and difficult. Parenting takes no prisoners. And parenting humbles everybody. Even still, even still, we don't like people poking around into our homes and prodding us about our parenting, do we? We really don't want people looking under the hood and making suggestions. Hey, you know, little Timmy was a little rambunctious this morning in the line. And some of them left their snacks on the ground over here, whatever that is. That's awesome. So many kids. Super cool, by the way. Is that true of you, though, that you don't really like it when people kind of pick away at your parenting a little bit? 
Do you ever respond defensively when somebody asks you about your parenting? Just for a minute, think about the reason why. Why is that? Why is there kind of a wall that comes up when somebody wants to challenge our parenting? At least in part, it's because every parent is already doing their best. You shield them from sugar. You fill them with hormone-free organic goodness. You hover, if you even allow them to have sleepovers, you hover over that. You hover over their friend groups and their devices. Every parent in the room would lay down their life and give their last drop of blood for their kids. And so we find it difficult to be told we aren't doing enough or we aren't doing it the right way. And so we wall off thinking, I got this covered because I'm all in. But let's be honest, no parent is perfect and no parenting method is perfect. No one has a corner on parenting. You and I need the word of God to inform us on our parenting. We need to be open to hearing from God himself on the priorities of parenting, and we need to be humble enough to listen with open hearts and be willing to change as we better understand God's plan for our families. And so with that as the introduction, I want to challenge your parenting today. I want to get into your kitchen and turn the heat up just a little bit. Fair warning. And it's my prayer that as we evaluate our parenting, that God would reveal areas of weakness areas maybe of sin, and that he would do his work on our hearts. Now, we've already been there this morning, but would you reopen your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 6? Deuteronomy chapter 6. Jake asked me to preach this, and I understand why, with so many young families here at Faith Bible Menifee, this is a seminal passage. And these familiar verses are directed not only to parents, but to any person who disciples, who leads, who seeks to influence the next generation. It could be a nephew or a niece. It could be a sibling or a friend. It could be a youth ministry worker or a children's worker. It could be somebody that you babysit. And so the instruction here is simple, and it really hits at the very heart of our faith. And this message is for everyone in the room. I know Danny already read it, but I'd like to read it again, just since it's a shorter passage, to reframe it one more time. We're going to look at verses 4 through 9. Let me read. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. These words, which I am commanding you today, shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. And you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This morning, I'd like to draw just four keys to parenting from these verses. This is a simple passage. This is a simple concept. It is not easy. But here they are. We're going we're gonna to look at listen carefully, view God rightly, love God entirely, and train them deliberately. These are four keys. 
And they are the first step to parenting like a boss, which I'm not sure if it says that at the top of your sheets. Does it say that? It does. Okay. Because that's just the way that I roll and I don't have very theologically framed expressions, but we want to parent like a boss. There it is. Okay. Point number one in your outline. Listen carefully. Listen carefully. The people of Israel have wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, just to set up the context here. They're now standing at the edge of the promised land. God has instructed Moses to give the law once again to his people. That is what Deuteronomy is. Deutero means second in the Greek. Namas means law. Deutero namas, the second law. In chapter 5, we see recounting the Ten Commandments. The Ten Words. The same commands that were given on Sinai, inscribed in stone so they cannot be changed or forgotten. And now in chapter 6, the entire nation has gathered. And Moses comes in verse 4, look down there again, and he says, Hear, O Israel, from the youngest to the oldest, from the highest to the lowest, husbands and wives and fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters, all have gathered together to hear a word from God. And Moses steps forward to deliver this singular charge. It is a declaration, an all-inclusive call to every man and woman that calls themselves a child of God. It is as if he is saying, I have but one thing to tell you. One great truth that you need to know. One singular reality by which you must live. This is his effort to gain their attention. To get them focused in. It was 8.10 a.m. on Saturday, January 13th, 2018, that every resident, every person on the island of Oahu, by the way, Oahu is where you have Honolulu and Waikiki and the North Shore and Pearl Harbor, Pipeline, all those things, in case you're wondering. Every person at 8.10 a.m. on that Saturday morning received the following text message. Ready? Ballistic missile threat. Stop. Inbound to Hawaii. Stop. Seek immediate shelter. Stop. This is not a drill. If we were sitting here, it would be like an Amber Alert popping up on every single phone. Now, if you go back to 2018, tensions were high in the Trump White House between the Trump White House and North Korea. And calculations had shown that it would take a little over 30 minutes for a missile fired from Korea to make it across the Pacific Ocean and the first place of strike would be Hawaii. You can imagine why there'd be fear. Hawaii is no stranger to surprise attacks. Pearl Harbor. And so the people of Hawaii rightly responded with terror. They panicked. They called loved ones to say goodbye. They cried and they waited. A friend of mine who lives in Hawaii told me that it was mass pandemonium. People emptied out of stores and hotels and restaurants. They ran into the streets. They even drove to certain highways that cut through the island, through the mountain, and stopped inside the tunnels to find some kind of shelter from the fallout. This particular friend was out running errands. Too far from home, he was at Home Depot to run back and get to his family. And so instead, he called his wife. He instructed her to take their two little boys 
to get into the bathtub to do her best to cover themselves over. And then he told her goodbye. 38 minutes later, another text message came through on everybody's phone saying this text was an error. And somebody got fired. (laughs) But one thing is certain in that moment, the people of Oahu were focused on one thing, their current reality. And so it is with this text. God has something to say. And he wants your full attention. Excuse me. He wants your undivided focus. The topic is that important. It is that central that he calls for everybody here to listen. And so I just want to know, do I have your attention? Are you focused in? Yes? Good. Number two. Number two. View God rightly. Must listen carefully, but... Secondly, we must view God rightly. If we are to be good parents and good disciples and good leaders, we must have a right view of God. Look again at verse four. And there Moses adds, look down at your Bibles. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. In Hebrew, this is called the Shema. It means to listen or to hear. And it's the most important ritual prayer in the lives of the Jews being repeated three times every single day. Three times a day they prayed this prayer. Now, why is it so important? It's because in one brief sentence and in an economy of words, there is a declaration of the nature and the character of God. His name is Yahweh. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the covenant-keeping God of the nation of Israel. He is not wood or stone as the man-made idols of the other nations. He is the sovereign commanders of the armies of heaven, and he sits on a great white throne, and all creation obeys his command. He is the exalted one who reigns over the realm of men. He is the absolute and infinite one who alone is to be worshipped. This is the declaration made by every Jew. Yahweh is the one true God. Now look there, because I want you to notice one little word. It is the word our. I love that word. The Lord is our God. Have you heard better news than this? Can you think of anything better than to know that this God is our God? The eternal, all-powerful, omniscient, sovereign, creator of all things. He is our God. And he is a personal God who has condescended to us, who has revealed himself, who has granted us relationship with him, and he is not far off. He is not disinterested. He is our God. If you fast forward just a few generations to 1 Samuel 5, the Ark of the Covenant was taken by the Philistines and put into the Temple of Dagon. You might remember the story. These people defeated the Israelites, and so they took the Ark and they brought it into their temple. And they set it right there next to the other God, because this God represents Israel's God. This box, gold box, sheriff's going across. And this statue represented Dagon, the fish god. Body of a fish or body of a man, head of a fish. And so they go to bed that night thinking, great, we have both gods who can beat us. And they come back the next morning, and what has happened? Dagon is fallen over. And they stand and they go, Dagon, what happened? So they take Dagon, and they stand back up. And they go about their business and they come back the next day. And guess what's happened the next day? 
Dagon is again laying flat before the Ark of the Covenant. This time, his head and his hands have been cut off of his body. God, Yahweh, does not share his glory with another. For all the gods of the people are idols, Psalm 96.5 says. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are his sanctuary. This is our God. The psalmist looks up from his plight in Psalm 121. He looks to the mountain around him and he says, from where shall my help come from? And he says in 121.1, my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and the earth. This is our God. The apostle Paul echoes this in Romans 8 saying, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? This is our God. And this is where parenting starts. Come back to me. This is where it starts. A high view of God, a right view of God, a recognition that we are under his mighty hand and that his ways are right, that his instructions and commands are to be followed. In Deuteronomy 5 and Deuteronomy 6, God is described as powerful and glorious. He is the promise-keeping God who is rich in loving kindness. I think I gave you some notes there. He is a deliverer and a rescuer and a savior of his people. He is worthy of worship and he sits over all as the righteous judge. And so here's Moses and he's standing before the people, all the people, and he's setting the priority and the direction of their lives, of their families, and of their nation as they move into the promised land. And he begins by establishing a high view of God. Listen, parents. You will never be able to train them to be like God. To submit to God's rule. And to follow God's ways. Unless you know who God is. And the first step is to view him rightly. And that leads us to point number three. Love God entirely. Love God entirely. And now we're actually into the heart of the matter. Look back at verse five. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might." This is the great and foremost command of the law. Isn't that what Jesus said? The center of all religion. And it's repeated in all three synoptic gospels by Jesus himself. And in the fourth gospel, the gospel of John, in the final chapter, Jesus pushes Peter at the very end on that seashore in Galilee, asking him three times, do you love me? That's the question, isn't it? That's the question. Because you can show up to church every Sunday and you can go to the midweek Bible study and you can go out to the men's Saturday morning. You can even volunteer to serve. You can have all the routine down. You can tell your kids they need to love God and obey him. But all of this is secondary to you. All of this is secondary to your heart. To the men in this room. Do you love Jesus most? More than your wife? More than your job, more than your hobbies. Do you love Jesus more than your secret fantasies and sins that no one knows about? 
to the women in this room. Ladies, do you love Jesus most? More than your husband? More than your children? More than your picture of a perfect life? Is Christ your all? Your sufficiency? Do you find contentment and identity in Christ over and above your identity as a mother? And so here we are at the very heart of the issue, the very root. You cannot parent your children or lead that small group or disciple that young person if Christ is not all to you. Because all you're teaching is hypocrisy. Isn't that what Jesus said in Matthew 15, 8? This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. You can hide who you are from your boss. You can hide it from the other moms at co-op. You can even hide it from your small group leader or your pastor at church. But you cannot hide it from God. He knows your heart. And stay with me. You cannot hide it from your children. Because they know the real you. There's so much conversation today about why children, kids, our youth abandon the church at 18 years old. They leave the things of God behind and they deconstruct their faith. So much talk about what's wrong with the church and what do we do to fix that problem? And yea, verily, there are things that we need to do in this church and at my church and at every church to better disciple, raise, teach, shepherd our young people. But can I help you here get a little closer to home? There is no greater reason that teenagers leave the church and abandon their faith than the hypocrisy they see in their own homes. You can tell them how to follow God's ways. You can preach obedience until you're blue in the face, but they are watching you. They know the real you. They're sitting in the backseat listening as you fight. They can hear you yelling at each other in the next room. They know what you watch on TV. They know if your Bible sits on the shelf all week only to make its weekly trip to church and back. There is nothing that confuses a child more than the hypocrisy of their own parents. One author said, parents say much more to their kids by their lives than by their words. Friends, we must take steps today for the sake of our children, but more importantly, for the sake of our own souls. This is front and center. This is the crux of it all. You shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. It flows from the heart. It encapsulates the whole being. It holds nothing back. It gives all to him. Look at that word there in verse five, that word all, repeated three times as if to emphasize, to prioritize. Love is raised to the third power, showing its supremacy, its completeness. 
There are no competitors, no rivals, no seconds. It is total. It is complete. There are no road desires, no secret sins, no other loves. All are rooted out and thoroughly abandoned. There is only God, and he alone is worthy. He demands our complete attention. He demands our total worship. That's the testimony that all must have. It is the command that we all must follow. Amen. And if you want to know why, refer back to point two. It is because of who God is. He is the God of Israel who by his own power and because of his loving kindness rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. He released them from bondage, drew near to them and gave them life. And so it is with us. God saved us by his own power. Because of his loving kindness, he has rescued us from slavery to sin and its eternally destructive power. And he has drawn near to us, paying the penalty of our sin, making us alive together with Christ so that we could be his both now and forever. Hear, O Christian of Faith Bible Church Menifee, and listen to the declaration. This is the one true God, and he is to be loved and worshipped and obeyed. Is there a question in your family about what you love most? If I asked your spouse, what would they say? If I asked your kids, what would they say? The home is the true indicator of where our love truly lies. And there are three simple tests to determine where our affections are. Maybe you've heard this. Your calendar, your bank account, and your mouth. If Christ is first, then he will be on our lips. If Christ is first, it will be reflected in how we spend our time. If Christ is first, it will be reflected in how we spend our money. Love for Christ cannot be manufactured, can it? It cannot be contrived. For either you love Christ and your family is oriented around him, or it's not. This is the crux. This is the center of the message of my sermon this morning. This is how to parent like a boss. This is the center of this passage. This is the key. Everybody wants to give you different tips on parenting. You know, this is not about self-help. This is not about 10 steps to being a better parent. It's not about the five parenting books that you have on your shelf that you promised to read at some point. It's not about whether you homeschool or public school your kids. This is about one thing. There is a singular priority. The direction that your family moves will be dictated by those things that you love and those things that are most precious to you. Now, before they were woke, I had the privilege of going to UCLA for my undergraduate degree. Amazingly, My daughters are now UCLA fans. Now, certainly, it could be because UCLA has a robust athletics program, has more national championships than its crosstown rival. We could say that. I don't know. Maybe it's because the quality of the academics there that they like UCLA so much. You have to have a 4.18 GPA coming out of high school um, versus a 3.7 across town. I, I don't know, maybe it's because UCLA has produced 25 Nobel Prizes versus the paltry 10 from USC. I, I mean, it could be the campus location. 
beautiful Westwood versus dangerous South Central L.A.? Or maybe it's, I don't know, it could be the annual cost. I don't even want to mention these things, right? $35,000 versus $85,000. I mean, there's so many things that we can look at as to why my daughters might like UCLA more. We don't even need to mention the fact that the NCAA um, put sanctions against SC, stripping them of their national championship for football because they're a bunch of cheaters. We won't even talk about that, okay? All those things aside, why do my girls like UCLA? Because? Because I do. Because I do. Because I talk about it. Because I have their gear. Because I have a very fond affection for for that place. So is the case with our families. What we love most is evident and will be seen in our homes and modeled by our children. If we love entertainment, the TV will always be on. If we love sports, then Sundays become optional during travel ball. If we overvalue family, then church plays second fiddle. And if we parent out of fear, then we never let them out of our sight. In Revelation 2, Jesus calls this the first love. Have you lost your first love and drifted from nearness to Christ? I told you this is simple, but it's not easy. And the Lord, as it were, wants to operate on your heart this morning to expose what's in the deepest recesses of our hearts. And he's asking every one of you, do you love me? And our glorious, gracious Savior, when we fail, and Danny prayed it this morning, I was praying with him, Lord, me too. I haven't loved you. Nowhere near what should be in my heart. But our gracious Savior calls us back time and again as we confess our sin. He is faithful and he is righteous to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We must listen carefully. We must view God rightly. We must love God entirely. And finally, We must train them deliberately. We must train them deliberately. Look back down at verse 6. These words, these words, which I am commanding you today, shall be on your heart. Forever and always, the commands of God are to be placed close to our hearts, ever to be memorized to be meditated on, and to be lived out. And it is here that we see the command to bring this to the next generation. Look at the first verse in verse seven. You shall teach them diligently to your sons. And we can add two daughters as well. Here the instruction is given to moms and to dads, to dads and to moms, to the parents. The order of operations is laid out and the burden of responsibility falls to the mom and to the dad and to the dad and to the mom and to the parents. Notice he does not direct the command to the government. That'd be scary. He doesn't give this to the educational system or to our culture. It is not given to teachers or to coaches, or even youth leaders. The duty and responsibility rests solely on the shoulders of the parents. It is a weighty task. 
It is a lifelong assignment given to every parent, ready or not. I married KK and Jonah in October, actually on Halloween. Young couple, 21 years old. On December 4th or 5th, they came to me and said, no, it was a little bit later than that. We're pregnant, ready or not. First round after they got married, boom, done. Baby on the way. Ready or not, this is the assignment that comes to every parent. But if you look through the Old Testament and the New Testament, you don't find a whole lot about parenting, do you? Have you noticed that? Have you been looking for that? Maybe you missed that book in the Bible. Strangely quiet. There are some Proverbs that give truisms on parenting, right? There is Ephesians 6 and Colossians 3 that speak directly on parenting. There's a smattering of other passages like this one in Deuteronomy. But the instructions are limited. It's a lot like going to Ikea and getting that piece of furniture and then getting home and finding those bags full of the parts and pieces and going, well, this is not going to be easy. It's like 172 steps. And if you miss step number four, you have to take the whole thing apart at the end. It's, it's disastrous. Anyway, parenting is similar. We're not given step-by-step instructions. Instead, we're given principles to employ in the training of our children. Principles to employ. And so there are three such principles found in these verses. Your training should be intentional. It should be natural. And it should be continual. Let me show this to you. Look back at verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your sons. We'll call this intentional training. The first thing that we see here is that it must be intentional. Proactive. The word for diligent teaching. Do you see it right there in verse 7? To teach diligently in the Hebrew was used for sharpening a blade. It's to take a stone and rub it on a dull blade, applying just the right amount of pressure at the perfect angle, moving at just the right speed, one stroke at a time, and preparing that blade for its actual task. Now, I happen to bring a blade with me this morning. I did not find this up here on the stage. This is a machete. And uh, uh, I bought a house about five years ago from Luana. And a lady who had just retired, she's in her 60s, and her son, her husband passed away, his son moved out, so she was by herself, which, which is, I think, the reason why the machete was in the garage. I'm not sure, uh, but uh, it was super sharp, well cared for, and it was in a special little space right away. And I still use this because this thing is the perfect tool to, to take a palm tree with the perfect amount of pressure at just the right angle, the right, the right spot on the blade, and to knock palm fronds down. I love this thing. Isn't that kind of cool, this machete? But I've got right here also this little rock that I brought. And so there's an aspect where the blade needs to be kept just so sharp, right? Just the right amount of pressure, just the right angle, just the right speed to keep the blade in working order. As the metaphor carries, here we are as parents, and we are desiring to hack the way through this dark world, to protect our kids, to slay anything that gets in the way, to be out in front of them, using the blade to cut through and open the pathway for their future. And really, as parents, we want to protect them from all of these things, and we want to go before them, and we want to keep them in in a little bit of a bubble sometimes, as it were, and really work hard, because this is our job as parents, right? 
Then I think back about what this verse actually means. And the question that comes is, which of these are you, mom? And which of these are you, dad? Are you the blade or are you the stone? A little dull, a little drab, not as cool as you used to be. You're the stone. God has not called you to stand in front of your kids and eliminate every challenge from their life and hover over them and bubble wrap parent them, helicopter and snowplow and whatever else phrases might be there. Your job is to prepare them to cut through the darkness of the world and the jungle of life. Your job in intentionally training them is to get them ready for their future, listen carefully, without you. Our goal is to make them ready for independence. Or we could say it this way, independent dependence on God. Independent of us, dependent on him. That's our job. We want to help them to discern God's will in each and every aspect of their life. Yes, to help them understand, fight temptations, but to live independently for Christ in a lost world. Your your kids have been given to you as a stewardship. They are not yours forever. These moments of holding them that I'm seeing and listening to them in the background, which I love, these are such good times, but they are for a moment. Your job is to train them intentionally so they can stand on their own before God. They are not your identity. They are your charge. They are your responsibility. And you are simply a tool in the hand of the master. You're working toward a future without you. A future where you are no longer needed. When they can stand on their own and defend themselves independent of you. Don't forget your role. On the one hand, there's intentional training. On the other hand, listen carefully. You are not God. You cannot change their heart. And while you seek to intentionally train them at this stage when they're younger, as they grow older, that you have to come off a little bit. The lane that they're in has to widen because as they begin to engage their will and they begin to engage their hearts and make real decisions on their own as teenagers and beyond, if you contract and hold them down like this, when they hit 18, boop, they'll be gone. They will. You're a parent, a steward. You cannot change their heart. You're just a tool God is using to prepare them. So intentionally train with that in mind. Apply the right amount of pressure at the perfect angle. Move at just the right speed, one stroke at a time, and prepare them for their future. It's intentional. It requires forethought. The diligent teaching of your sons and daughters. Proverbs 22, 6 says, Train up your child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. You've got health care, right? You've saved for a house. You have a retirement strategy. You've gone on some kind of family vacation at some point. Each of those requires forethought. You have to have a plan. You have to have intentionality. And so it is with training your kids. And the mantle of responsibility falls squarely on the shoulder of the dad's. Of the fathers. It is to the men that God has placed the mantle of leadership for the home. Dad, it is your task. I read this following paragraph at every wedding that I do for young men, young women. Here it is. 
to the man in the challenge section. It is your responsibility. And if your house is out of order, if the finances are messed up, if the kids are rebellious or there's spiritual apathy in your family, then do not look to another because you are the root cause and you are the high watermark. As you go, so goes your family. That's heavy. And so here we are. Like, yes, I get that. But what do I do? I don't even know how to apply this. How do I get started? Sean, I'm not a pastor. I don't know my Bible the way you do or whatever. A couple quick suggestions if you're looking for a place to start. Are you ready? This is for everybody in the room. Spend as many nights a week as you can in family worship. In our family, we called it big story time because the first books we started with were these giant books. And my daughter said, can we read the big story? And so we'd open that up. It's like six pages long. And I would always skip pages because I'm trying to get done faster. And my daughter would go, Dad, you skipped the page. Oh, I'm sorry, honey. Okay. But I open it up and you walk through this together. Pick a book. Read that book. As they get a little older, go to the Jesus Storybook Bible. Write that one down. It's, I think, one of the greatest books ever written outside the Bible. It's amazing. The days are fleeting, as many of you know, and they get into their high school years. And all of a sudden, like four nights a week, they're out doing stuff. And you lose these, these times. Don't overthink this. Don't overthink this. Just set the priority. Dads, today, walk out of here, go to lunch and say to your wife, honey, I know I haven't done this. I want to start now. And so tonight we're just going to open the little book about Noah and read. Just dinner's over. Sit on the couch or on their beds. Just open that and read the story. And at the end, pray. Pray for your kids. Pray for your family. Say amen. Let them pray. Go to bed. That changes as they get older. And you get more intentional in different aspects of that. Make it a priority to be a church. You want to know how to intentionally train them? Be here every Sunday. Be here when the doors are open. Be part of the midweek groups. If there's a, uh, not if there is, for youth group, be part of the Wednesday nights. Be, be involved in what's happening in the local church. And show them that this is priority for you. Deuteronomy 6 tells us to teach our children, not only intentionally, but also secondly, naturally. Naturally, look back at verse seven. It says, you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. The process is intentional. Excuse me. And it's also natural. It's not just in the formal context of the church. It's not just when you sit down for family worship as if the heavens open, there's a light that comes down from heaven and all of a sudden, here's that moment where I've been waiting to impart all of my wisdom to you. It doesn't work that way. Rather, it's in the blank spaces of life. It's in all of life. It's when you sit and when you walk and when you rise and when you lay down. It's basically in all of the blank spaces that because you love God with all your heart and these words are bound to your heart, it will naturally come out in everyday life. I think often about the days where Zoe, my oldest, was just in the, in the car seat and she, we had just turned her around to face forward. So she's like a couple years old, two years old. And we'd go to Lowe's together to pick up some project that I was doing at the house, destroying, because um, I can't work with my hands very well. It's another illustration altogether. But she'd be right next to me because I had a Toyota truck and it had no back seat. So I could put her um, in the front seat next to me. We would drive around and I would say, Zoe, Zoe, who made those clouds? And they're like... Instantaneously, God did. Zoe, who made the green mountains with those flowers there? God did. And Zoe, who made that sun that's shining through the window right now? God. Okay, good. 
that's great, you got it well. And in that moment, I am naturally training her. And at the same time, my heart is being drawn to worship this amazing creator God that I'm seeing all around me. As they get older, you're looking for conversations about friendships, about the opposite sex, about their desires and all that's going on in their lives and their heart, sports and schooling and sex and every other facet of life. It is not just intentional, it is natural. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, you're looking for opportunities and you let them come out in a natural way. Finally, it is not just intentional, it's not just natural, but it's also continual. Look down at verse eight. He says, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now the Jews took this literally. They would write the Shema onto a little piece of leather or on a piece of uh, parchment um, and they would place it into a small wooden box and then they would either bind it, literally strap it to their foreheads or put it onto their left arm or their left wrist. That's what he said there, right? Bind it as a sign on your hand. Put it as a frontal on their forehead. They, they took it literally, a very wooden interpretation. You might think that's silly. <laughs> that's so cute of them that they would do that. But I think many of us take verse 9 literally as well. How many of you have a framed verse in your doorway when you come into your house? How many of you have a tattoo somewhere of a Bible verse? Right? Joshua 24, 15. Maybe as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I bet there's some of those in your homes right now. Awesome. That's what this is. In my house, we have a stanza from an old poem written by a missionary named C.T. Studd. It hangs up. It says, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Why do we do this? It's, it's a statement. It's a statement to our own hearts. It's a statement to our children. It's a statement to everyone who enters that this home is about the things of God. And so that process is intentional, it's natural, it's continual in all of life. It's everywhere you look. We're keenly aware, we're focused on the training of our children. This is 911, what's your emergency? That's what the operator said to me. I said, there's a young woman that my wife and I have been ministering to. She's in the middle of an altercation with her boyfriend. And I'm sending her to the police station because she's in her car so she can get away from him. Please have a uniformed officer out front waiting when she pulls in. She'll be there in two minutes. I left my house and I drove over to meet her there. And after talking with the, the police and filing a police report, she came back to our house. We sat down in our kitchen as my daughters who were 17 and 15 at the time were helping us prepare and make dinner. Now this young lady is a strong woman and she held it together. She did not show one sign of emotion. She did not cry in front of the police officer. She was dialed in and buttoned up. But once she sat down in our, ki in our kitchen and the doors were closed and I said to her, it's okay, you can let it out. And she broke down sobbing uncontrollably about her ruined relationship and her life and all that had contributed to the series of events. Now, my wife and I are very careful with what we allow our girls to hear. 17, 15 years old. We're regularly counseling young men and young women. 
And just about always, we're behind a closed door for privacy and confidentiality, right? But not that night. Our girls heard every word. And it was intentional. As she's crying, working this through, then the girls are trying to be absorbed into the furniture, cutting their vegetables. They heard it all. After we finished and she left, we sat down as a family. We talked about it over dinner. What led her to this point? It's a disregard for counsel, lying, manipulation, sexual sin. And then we opened our Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. And we read in that section, Paul lays out all the different disobedience of Israel. And he says this, now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction. Paul says, look at the example in Israel and don't do what they did. Learn from it. And so I said, my daughters, be careful what you do. Be careful who you give your heart to, how you live. Look at this situation and don't fall into the same trap. And just because they're church kids and their dad's a pastor and they have a proclivity towards self-righteousness, just like their father, I read the next verse. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Reminding them that we are all sinners, that every one of us is in a struggle with sin and that we desperately need the grace of God. That's intentional training in the natural flow of life given in a continual way. That's our job as parents. And I get it. It's usually not that pronounced as it was that night. But it's always there. These opportunities are always before us. And more often than not, we feel inadequate. And we're insecure with our Bible knowledge and our abilities. We don't know what to say or how to say it. And friend, that's perfectly fine. And I will say this publicly right now. I'm an elder, I'm a pastor, all those things great. I've never raised teenagers before. My wife and I, we don't really know what we're doing. As a youth pastor, we experimented on other people's kids, but, but this, is, this is it. We don't really know, it's one big experiment. But you know what? I love Jesus with all of my heart and I'm trying and seeking to love him more. And I'm seeking to bring that into my home. It's not perfect. It's typically very messy in our home. But we want to honor him, my wife and I, with our lives. And so we're living and praying and hoping that these meager efforts God will use to sharpen our kids and prepare them for their life on their own. And so we cling to his promises and we try our best to take advantage of every resource that's available. And I would say the same thing here. And by the way, as I'm wrapping this, I got it. This is a tall task. There's a lot moving here. And I know there's people listening going, I missed it. Then I failed. And I haven't done this. And my kids are old and gone. And I'm feeling the force of condemnation. Or the force of conviction. Or I'm in the middle of this process and we need to do some redirection. I'm feeling the weight of that sin or those bad decisions. And I just want to lift you up. Because none of us comes to Christ based on our performance. He doesn't look at us and look down and go, aha, 
terrible. When God looks down on us, he doesn't see our meager, sin-filled, fallen efforts. Do you know what he sees? He looks down on us the same way he looked down on his son, and he says, that is my beloved son, in whom I am what? Well, please, because when God looks at you and when he looks at me, he sees only the finished work of Christ. And so we don't need to sit and whip ourselves and say, let me do better this week and say, I've got to earn my favor with God. Instead, we recognize Jesus did it all and we are under grace and we are set free. And so today we can look and say, God, course correction. I confess that sin and I want to move on and honor you in my life going forward. You cannot walk out of here feeling just depressed and weighted. You have to walk out with the hope of Christ in your heart and a movement toward the future for change. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's what binds every heart to him. So I want to encourage you to take some steps today. Like I already mentioned, sit down with your spouse and develop a plan. Your kids are not going to be here forever. And the foundation of their life is being poured right now. Don't miss what one author calls the age of opportunity. They need you now more than ever to be a guiding force in their lives, to correct them in their errors, and to point them in the right direction. Question is, what steps can you take today in your heart before God and your parenting? Let me wrap. We've been told to listen carefully. We've been told to view God rightly. We've been told to love God entirely. And we've been told to train them deliberately. You and I are partners with God himself as he paints a masterpiece. See your role. Embrace it and go after it. And in all of that, you too can learn to parent like a boss. Oh, not even a laugh. Okay, that's fine. I just want to encourage you that you're not alone in this. Church is here to help, and there are resources around you um, and amazing moms and dads that can help and give you wisdom and direction.